Since I was seven years old, my mama told me, go make yourself some friends or you'll be lonely. Once I was seven years old. It was a big, big world, but we thought we were bigger. Pushing each other to the limits, we were learning quicker. I'm back, exam is fast approaching, and let's do some peds. I think what we'll do now is talk through some questions. I'll pick up some random questions that I found in lots of different books, and we'll do some background reading on them. So here we go, paediatrics. And of course, it wouldn't be songs for FRCR without random paediatric-themed songs throughout. Let's start with an easy peasy one, and that is ossification centres of the elbow. I'm sure you all know it, but I'm just going to say it again. Critol, C-R-I-T-O-L is the mnemonic you need to remember, and that goes capitellum, radial head, internal epicondyle, or the medial epicondyle, trochlea, olecranon, and lateral epicondyle. That's the way they appear in that order, and the ages that they appear respectively are 1, 5, 5, 7, 10, 11. So it's Kreitol at ages 1, 5, 5, 7, 10, 11 respectively. Let's try and get through as many questions as we can, as quickly as we can. Next question is on adnexal tumours in young girls, particularly a juvenile granulosa cell tumour. A juvenile granulosa cell tumour is unilateral most of the time and it affects prepubescent girls. They secrete oestrogen and therefore the girls present with precocious puberty. Imaging appearance is variable. It can have hemorrhage, no hemorrhage, fibrosis, no fibrosis. So that's not going to help you. But on MRI, there is a characteristic sponge-like appearance, which I'd like a sponge. It's a solid mass with loads of little cysts in it. The reason I mention a juvenile granulosa cell tumour is because I suspect it's quite an easy exam question to put in because it has specific uh, tumour markers. So the tumour marker it will have will be inhibin. I-N-H-I-B-I-N. So the exam thread will read something like 12-year-old girl, unilateral adnexal mass, wide range of appearances, but they would be unfair if they didn't say it had a sponge-like appearance on T2-weighted MRI, or they might just say solid mass with multiple little cysts, which is the sponge-like appearance. She will present with precocious puberty and raised serum inhibin. The most likely diagnosis here is definitely a juvenile granulosa cell tumour. A common differential they'll put in would be a Sertoli or Leydig cell tumour, 
which is a good shout. But generally, sertoli leading cell tumours, they will cause virilization in girls rather than precocious puberty. So to summarise, juvenile granulosa cell tumours, again, prepubescent, unilateral, adnexal mass with raised oestrogen levels because it releases oestrogen and serum inhibin is raised. Imaging appearance is variable, but they should mention the sponge-like appearance on T2-weighted MRI. And that is juvenile granulosa cell tumour. Next, let's talk about a few causes of bowel obstruction in a neonate. The first is, of course, meconium plug syndrome. This will present in the early neonatal period with delayed passage of meconium and some usually mild dilatation of the proximal bowel. What you'll find on imaging is a plug of meconium hence meconium plug syndrome, sitting in the left colon. Proximal to this plug of meconium, the colon will be distended and distally it's often very small calibre. And you'll also see some dysmotility of the colon. Treatment is fairly straightforward. A water-soluble contrast enema will diagnose it and treat it. So just to go over that again, meconium plug syndrome it's transient, it will occur in the neonatal period and they'll come in with delayed passage of meconium. It's happened because there is some colonic dysmotility and it's created a large plug of meconium within the left colon. The colon itself can either be normal or it can be mildly distended, proximal to the area of the plug. Distally, it's small. You can give a water-soluble contrast enema to both diagnose it and treat it. If the treatment doesn't work or there is abdominal distension that continues even after treatment, then most of the books suggest that the next step is to do a rectal biopsy to rule out Hirschsprung disease. Which brings me nicely on to the next differential when it comes to little babies not opening their bowels, Hirschsprung disease. Hirschsprung is a bowel problem that occurs because of loss or absence of the normal ganglionic cells. In Hirschsprungs, the aganglionosis, so absence of the ganglions, will always affect the rectum. So it starts at the rectum and then extends proximally. How much it extends proximally is variable. But remember, Hirschsprung's always, always affects the rectum and then travels proximally. Usually it won't travel very far. 
it's usually short segment disease and the transition zone which is where the aganglionic bowel turns into normal bowel is usually in the rectosigmoid junction area so it doesn't go very far you can use a contrast enema to find the transition zone but you can't give too much if you give a whole load then you'll cover the transition zone and mask it and you can't identify it the bowel proximal to the area of Hirschsprung's, the area of aganglionosis, is often distended. And the aganglionotic bit, the diseased bit, will have lots of uncontrolled, irregular contractions. So just to go over Hirschsprung's, it is a disease of absence of ganglions. We lose the ganglions within the bowel plexuses. And then that causes an area of bowel that has irregular, uncontrolled contractions. The bowel involved is always the rectum. It always starts in the rectum, then travels proximally. Usually it won't travel very far and the transition zone, which is where the aganglionic diseased Hirschsprung bit becomes normal bowel, is usually around the rectosigmoid junction area. Another cause of bowel obstruction or not pooing in babies is meconium ileus syndrome. Now meconium ileus syndrome is usually in patients with cystic fibrosis. What happens here, this is a distal small bowel problem, not a colon problem. So the distal small bowel is blocked with thick meconium. A water-soluble contrast enema will both diagnose and treat this. So, just to reiterate that, meconium ileus syndrome is a disease affecting the distal small bowel, where you have lots of thick meconium blocking the small bowel, usually cystic fibrosis patients. A water-soluble contrast enema will diagnose and treat it. Colonic atresia causes microcolon so the atretic segment of colon causes distal microcolon this is really rare so only put this down on an exam if you're sure the other ones are wrong it's caused by usually a vascular insult in utero and what you'll see on imaging is an atretic segment of bowel with microcolon beyond it I'm not going to labour this one because I doubt they'll put it in. And finally, a small left colon syndrome. What's small left colon syndrome? This is a subtype of meconium plug syndrome. A subtype that, surprise, surprise, only affects the left colon or the descending colon and nothing else. The sigmoid is normal and everything is normal up until the splenic flexure. The disease or the abnormality is restricted to the descending colon. It gives you a small descending colon and like I said again, reiterate, it's restricted to the descending colon so only that is small. So that's five new baby not bowel opening syndromes. Meconium plug syndrome, Hirschsprung's, Meconium ileus syndrome, small left colon and colonic atresia.
30 years old, our songs have been sold, we've traveled around the world and we're still roaming, soon we'll be 30 years old. I'm still learning about life, my woman brought children for me, so I can sing them all my songs and I can tell them stories, most of my boys are with me, some are still out seeking glory, and some I had to leave behind my brother, I'm still sappy, soon I'll be 60 years old, my daddy got 61, remember life and then your life becomes a bit. Here's a quick thing to remember for the exam. If you have a question with a child with abnormal chest x-ray findings, which is obvious as an invective cause, like a viral pneumonia or a bacterial pneumonia or something, as long as the child is well and the symptoms resolve, you don't need to repeat imaging. So a child does not routinely need repeat imaging to ensure resolution of an acute problem. And just while I'm here, I'm going to take a five minute break from paediatrics and talk about leukodystrophies. I'm not going to give an exhaustive description of leukodystrophies and their findings on imaging because, let's be honest, a lot of the findings overlap and it gets boring. What I want to do is just talk about the big ones, the big five or six leukodystrophies and talk about the key or characteristic findings on imaging because that's what's going to help us in an exam. So what is a leukodystrophy? Leukodystrophies are inherited diseases of the white matter that cause dysmyelination. The dysmyelination they cause is secondary to dysfunction of different organelles within a cell either lysosomes, peroxisomes, mitochondria or others. So that's how I'm going to split them up. I'm just going to talk about five or six of them, but we'll split it up into leukodystrophies caused by lysosome dysfunction, peroxisome dysfunction, mitochondrial dysfunction and then a few others. I'm going to keep it short. Like I said, I don't want an exhaustive description because we have lots of textbooks for that. This is just a quick recap and hopefully I think all we'll need in the exam, a quick focus on the key findings on imaging. So I'll start with the leukodystrophies caused by lysosome dysfunction. There are three in this group, metachromatic leukodystrophy, crab disease and mucopolysaccharidosis. So that's the three that are caused by lysosome dysfunction. The first was metachromatic leukodystrophy. The key findings in metachromatic leukodystrophy, you obviously have the high T2 periventricular white matter signal, but that is an overlapping feature of lots of them. The key findings here is perivascular sparing which gives you a tigroid pattern and sparing of the subcortical U-fibers. So I'll say it again, metachromatic leukodystrophy causes perivascular sparing and gives rise to a tigroid pattern with 
also sparing of the subcortical U fibers. And I'm going to say it a third time because you're going to remember this, I'm going to remember this. Metachromatic leukodystrophy causes sparing of the subcortical U fibers and a classic tigroid pattern on imaging, which is caused by sparing of the perivascular areas. Perivascular sparing. That's the first in the group of lysosome dysfunction leukodystrophies. That was metachromatic leukodystrophy. The second in the group is crab disease. Crab, we're spelling K-R-A-B-B-E. The key finding in crab disease is high attenuation on CTs of the thalamus and the chordate nuclei. Again, they also have sparing of the U-fibers. So crab disease is thalamic and chordate nuclei increased attenuation on CT scans and sparing of the subcortical U-fibers. Going to go back to the start so we embed this in our brains. The first was metachromatic leukodystrophy. Key findings are sparing of the U-fibers and perivascular sparing, giving rise to a tigroid pattern. The second was crab disease or crab leukodystrophy. The key finding there on the CT scans is thalamic and chordate nuclei high attenuation, again with sparing of the U-fibers. The third and final disease in the lysosome dysfunction group is mucopolysaccharidosis. The key finding here is a very well-defined high T2 signal in the corpus callosum and the basal ganglia. I'll say it again, mucopolysaccharidosis gives well-defined foci of high T2 signal in the corpus callosum and the basal ganglia. So back to the beginning, characteristic features or imaging features of leukodystrophies. We start with the leukodystrophies caused by lysosome dysfunction. And there are three that I've talked about. There were metachromatic leukodystrophy, crab disease, and mucopolysaccharidosis. Metachromatic leukodystrophy, the key finding, remember, was perivascular sparing, giving rise to a tigroid pattern and sparing of the subcortical U-fibers. Then there was crab disease, again had sparing of the subcortical U-fibers, and the key finding here was high attenuation on CT of the thalamus and chordate nuclei. And the third and final was mucopolysaccharidosis. Key finding there was high T2 signal, really well-defined foci of high T2 signal within the corpus callosum and the basal ganglia. That's the three characteristic radiological findings of the three lysosome dysfunction leukodystrophies. The next one are peroxisome dysfunction leukodystrophies. The first is X-linked adrenoleukodystrophy. The key finding in X-linked adrenoleukodystrophy is symmetrical peritrigonal and splenium high T2 signal. 
they also have peripheral contrast enhancement. Let's say that again. There's only one disease I'm talking about in the peroxisome dysfunction leukodystrophy group, and that is X-linked adrenoleukodystrophy. X-linked adrenoleukodystrophy has key findings of symmetrical high T2 signal around the trigone of the ventricle, so peritrigonal and the splenium. Symmetrical high T2 signal, peritrigonal and splenium. Also peripheral contrast enhancement. I'm going to say it again because everyone switches off as soon as anyone talks about neuro. The second group is the peroxisome dysfunction leukodystrophies. The only one I've mentioned is X-linked adrenoleukodystrophy and the radiological finding of note is symmetrical peritrigonal high T2 signal and high T2 signal within the splenium plus peripheral contrast enhancement. Then we move on to mitochondrial. The mitochondrial dysfunction leukodystrophy. There's only one and that's MELAS. M-E-L-A-S. MELAS stands for mitochondrial encephalomyopathy, lactic acidosis and stroke-like episodes. We'll just call it MELAS or MELAS. M-E-L-A-S. What you see with MELAS, as the name might suggest to you, is multiple loads of cortical and subcortical infarct-like lesions. Loads of cortical and subcortical infarct-like lesions. And that's telling because the name of the disease is MELAS mitochondrial encephalomyopathy, lactic acidosis and stroke-like episodes. The stroke-like episodes bit should give you a clue to the key radiological finding which is multiple cortical and subcortical infarct-like lesions. Finally, two more leukodystrophies that I think we should know. The first is Canavan disease, C-A-N-A-V-A-N, Canavan disease. The key radiological finding here is that the U-fibres are preferentially affected. So in Canavan disease, the U-fibres are preferentially affected. Don't forget that. And finally, Alexander disease. The key finding in Alexander disease is it has a predilection for the frontal lobes and the subcortical white matter is affected early. So Alexander disease early involvement of the subcortical white matter and frontal lobe predilection. That's it. That's, I think, one, two, three, four, five, six, I think. Let's go back to the beginning and just say them one more time. Characteristic findings of the main leukodystrophies. Metachromatic leukodystrophy. So we'll start with the lysosome dysfunction leukodystrophies. Metachromatic main finding here can you remember u-fiber sparing the sparing of the subcortical u-fibers and sparing of perivascular spaces giving rise to a classic tigroid pattern the second in this group was crab disease key finding here on ct 
was high attenuation in the thalamus and the chordate nuclei, again with cortical U, subcortical U-fiber sparing. Next, mucopolysaccharidosis. The key finding here was well-defined foci of high T2 signal in the corpus callosum and the basal ganglia. That's the three leukodystrophies caused by lysosome dysfunction. We had one leukodystrophy caused by peroxisome dysfunction, and that was X-linked adrenoleukodystrophy. I remember it by peroxisome has an X in it, and then that tells me X-linked adrenoleukodystrophy. The key finding of X-linked adrenoleukodystrophy is symmetrical peritrigonal around the trigone of the ventricles, symmetrical peritrigonal and within the splenium high T2 signal with peripheral contrast enhancement. Then we had the leukodystrophies caused by mitochondrial dysfunction. We only mentioned one, MELAS, M-E-L-A-S, and the main finding there you should be able to remember easily because the name MELAS tells you multiple subcortical and cortical infarct-like lesions. Two more, Canavan disease. Remember, Canavan was the one where U-fibers were preferentially affected. And finally, Alexander disease, which had a predilection for the frontal lobes. And key finding there is the subcortical white matter is affected early. That should be all the leukodystrophies, the main ones. Do open a book and have a bit of a longer read about them. But I think once you know the key findings, that's what's going to help you in the exam. Because these stories and vignettes they give with the presentations and different things, they're all very similar and overlapping, so they can get quite confusing. The key is going to be these characteristic findings. So listen to this a few times and it'll go into your head or open a book and add more to the basic information I've just given you. In all honesty, this late in the game, with the exam being only a few weeks away, I think four and a half weeks now, that's probably all I'm going to learn on the major leukodystrophies. I have no intention of adding any more to my brain. Let's leave this topic now and go back to paediatrics. The next question, we're back in peds now. Next question is on a topic that I've heard in a few exam questions. It's Moya Moya, M-O-Y-A, M-O-Y-A, which is Japanese and I believe the literal translation is puff of smoke. This is essentially an idiopathic and progressive arteriopathy in children. Generally, they'll present with on and off symptoms, neurological symptoms, either hemiparesis or something like that. But you won't be expected to identify it by the symptoms. You will be expected to identify it by the imaging. What happens is the progressive arteriopathy causes narrowing of the distal internal carotid arteries. As the internal carotids narrow, then you get collateral formation. And these are lenticulostriate collaterals. Remember the lenticulostriate arteries are 
midst tiny arteries that come off the circle of Willis and anteriorly and they supply the basal ganglia. So these lenticulostriate collaterals create this multiple flow voids within the basal ganglia. These multiple flow voids look like a puff of smoke on angiography or moya moya. There are some secondary causes of the moya moya collaterals. The main secondary causes are neurofibromatosis 1, radiotherapy effects, so post-radiotherapy treatment, and sickle cell disease. So to summarise, moya moya is an idiopathic progressive arteriopathy in children. It causes narrowing of the distal, distal internal carotid arteries, which then forces the creation of lenticulostriate collaterals. These supply the basal ganglia, which then means you have this multiple flow voids within the basal ganglia in the appearance of a puff of smoke on angiography. The puff of smoke in Japanese is moya moya. There are secondary causes for this same appearance. They are neurofibromatosis 1, post-radiotherapy and sickle cell disease. A particular clue that might give you in the exam is that the child affected, they'll often say, is Japanese. If they say that, then you're home and dry. Let's do two questions or two topics before a song because I'm not saying much for each one, so we'll just rush through them. You may be asked in an exam to differentiate between an omphalocele and gastroschisis. I've seen this in a couple of books, so let's just talk about what they both are. Omphalocele first. So normally in the 10th week of gestation, around the 10th week of gestation, the midgut returns back into the peritoneal cavity. If the midgut completely fails to do this and doesn't go back into the peritoneal cavity, that's an omphalocele. Now it can be just a small loop of bowel that doesn't go back in, or it can be literally the whole midgut, including the liver. The key findings with non that will help differentiate it from gastroschisis are all the herniated midgut, whatever is herniated, will be covered with peritoneum and amnion. So remember, the key findings, everything that's herniated will be covered with peritoneum and amnion. Also, it's often associated with cardiac anomalies and with Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome. Gastroschisis is, is very unusual for it to be associated with anything else. And finally, the umbilical cord inserts at the apex of the omphalocele. So just to go over that again, an omphalocele, it's when the midgut does not go back into the peritoneum after the 10th week of gestation. It can be either a bit of bowel or it can be the whole midgut, often associated with cardiac anomalies and particularly Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome. In omphalocele's, the herniated gut will be covered with peritoneum and amnion and the umbilical cord will insert at the apex of the hernia. 
In contrast, gastroschisis, the umbilical cord inserts normally. Gastroschisis occurs after the 10th week of gestation once everything has returned to the abdomen as it should. The hernia of gastroschisis occurs through a paraumbilical defect. It's probably caused by an ischemic rupture of the abdominal wall. Because this rupture of the wall occurs after everything has gone back into the abdomen, the herniated contents in gastroschisis will not be covered with peritoneum. It's most often the stomach, midgut and bits of the urinary tract that are herniated. I've already said it often is not associated with any other syndromes or anomalies. And that's it. So gastroschisis, it's rupture of the abdominal wall once everything has gone back in where it should be. The rupture is probably ischemic and it occurs in a paraumbilical defect. The protruding viscera in gastroschisis are not covered by peritoneum. It can include the stomach, midgut or bits of the urinary tract. And in gastroschisis, the umbilical cord is normally inserting. That's it. That should be enough to identify the difference between the two. Well, in an exam question anyway. Next we'll do causes of a white eye reflex or leukocoria. This is fairly straightforward. So leukocoria, a white reflex, you're most concerned about retinoblastoma. The features of retinoblastoma or the things that will make you concerned for retinoblastoma are secondary retinal detachment, a mass extending into the vitreous and also the most specific thing which is calcification 95% of retinoblastomas will be calcified less than 30% will enhance so contrast enhancement is not a major feature the globe will be of a normal size in contrast to retinoblastoma there are some conditions which are called the pseudo retinoblastomas that just means they are non-neoplastic causes of leukocoria. There are three causes of a white reflex which are non-neoplastic. One is PHPV, that's persistent hyperplastic primary vitreous. Second is Coates disease, as in the coat that you wear, Coates disease. And the last one is Toxicara endophthalmitis. On CT in PHPV, You'll see a small globe. Remember, the globe is normal sized in retinoblastoma. In PHPV, you'll see a small globe and an enhancing retrolental mass. 
the small globe is called microophthalmia. That's PHPV. In Coates disease, that's a vascular malformation of the retina. You'll see a high attenuation globe and an enhancing subretinal exudate. And finally, Toxocara endophthalmitis. The findings in this are completely non-specific and very similar to Coates disease. You can get secondary retinal detachment. So to summarise, white reflex, the things that will make you most convinced of being a retinoblastoma, calcification is by far the most important because none of the pseudo-retinoblastomas will be calcified, none of them. If you see calcification, it's highly, highly, highly specific retinoblastoma. That's the most important thing. There are other things like seeing a mass extending into the vitreous or second-day retinal detachment. But you can get that in the, the pseudo-retinoblastomas too. Less than 30% of retinoblastomas will enhance, which I've already mentioned. And the globe size is normal. So that's retinoblastoma and the three things I mentioned, the three non-neoplastic causes of leukocoria are the pseudo-retinoblastomas, none of which have any calcification. There's PHPV, persistent hyperplastic primary vitreous. This will give you a small globe, microophthalmia, and an enhancing retrolental mass. So PHPV gives you microophthalmia, a small globe, and an enhancing mass behind the lens. Then I said Coates disease, that's a vascular malformation of the retina. Coates disease gives you high attenuation within the globe and an enhancing subretinal exudate. And finally, Toxocara endophthalmitis, which is very non-specific on imaging looks similar to Coates disease and you can get secondary retinal detachment. Next is acute pancreatitis in kids. When imaging children for acute pancreatitis certain things are not helpful. The echogenicity of the pancreas is not helpful. The size of the pancreas or looking for pancreatic enlargement is not helpful because in half people it won't be enlarged. When imaging a child with acute pancreatitis there are certain things that are not helpful on ultrasound because obviously ultrasound would be the image of choice. The echogenicity of the pancreas is not helpful. Looking for a swollen or increased size pancreas it's also not helpful because in half of children it won't be enlarged. And things like atrophy of the pancreas and pancreatic calcifications, these are all associated, we know, with chronic disease as they are in adults. So what is useful? The size of the pancreatic duct. We're looking for pancreatic duct dilatation. That's the most useful sign of acute pancreatitis in a child on ultrasound. So how big is too big? Well, with everything in paediatrics, it depends how old they are. If the child is one to six years of age, a pancreatic duct of more than 1.5 millimetres is enlarged. 
in a child of 7 to 12 years of age. A pancreatic duct of more than 1.9 millimetres is enlarged. And finally, a child of 13 to 18 years, anything above 2.2 millimetres is enlarged. So it goes up in groups of six years. So the first six years, one to six, 1.5 millimetres. The next lot of six years, seven to 12, is 1.9 millimetres. And the third lot of six years, 13 to 18, is 2.2 millimetres. So it's 1.5, 1.9, So just to reiterate, the most useful bit of information you can get from a pancreatic ultrasound in a child with acute pancreatitis when you're trying to diagnose acute pancreatitis is the size of the pancreatic duct. The numbers are what I've just given you. Another nugget now, and this one is on agenesis of the seminal vesicles. Let's talk about agenesis of the seminal vesicles. The question thread will read something like 12 year old boy is having a scan and a note is made of absent seminal vesicles either it's unilateral or bilateral. What does it mean and what is it associated with? So if there is unilateral agenesis of these seminal vesicles or there's a unilateral seminal vesicle cyst, that's associated with ipsilateral renal agenesis. So if the seminal vesicles are not there on the one side, then that's associated with the kidney also not being there on the one side, on the same side. That's one association. If the seminal vesicles are not present on both sides, if you have bilateral seminal vesicle agenesis, that is usually associated with bilateral vas deferens agenesis, which occurs in 99% of patients with cystic fibrosis. These patients have normal kidneys. So just to reiterate, if you have unilateral agenesis of the seminal vesicles, that is associated with renal agenesis on the same side. If you have bilateral seminal vesicle agenesis, then you most likely will also have bilateral vas deferens agenesis. And that occurs in 99% of people with cystic fibrosis. They have normal kidneys. As a side note, if you have bilateral calcified vas deferens, that's usually in diabetics. That was straightforward. Hi guys, before you listen to your episode today, we just wanted to take a moment and say thank you because this project has snowballed. 
we have hundreds of listeners and it's lovely to hear. It was a novel idea and it seems to have worked and we have so much more in store for you from December. We have lots of new hosts joining us, each with their own character, their own unique taste in music and their own style. We will have more songs, mnemonics, rhymes and lots of ways for you to remember things. That is all coming up from December and it's going to be so much fun. For the moment, we are putting a temporary break on new material just because the exam is looming and we are all taking it. We do have the odd half an hour here and there, however. So if there are specific topics that you'd love us to cover that you can listen to on your commute, then please do drop us a voice message and we'll do our best to do it as soon as possible. We've reached the home stretch and the finish line is in sight. So get your heads down, give it one last push and from the team at Songs for FRCR, good luck.